HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. My Family Recipe is a new podcast from Food52 and Heritage Radio Network, bringing you cherished heirloom recipes and the stories behind them. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, this is Lisa Held, and you're listening to The Farm Report, a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. While USDA-certified organic food still accounts for a small fraction of total food sales in the U.S., organic is now officially big business. In 2020, the Organic Trade Association data showed sales rose a record 12.8%, to a new high of $56.4 billion. That's for organic food. And as the industry has become more lucrative, fraud, cheating, and lax enforcement of the organic standards have followed. The Cornucopia Institute is a nonprofit watchdog organization that has been working to hold both companies and the USDA accountable in terms of sticking to organic's original ideals and making sure the reality of how organic food is produced lines up with organic's promises around sustainability, health, animal welfare, and more. Today's guest is Melody Morell, the executive director of Cornucopia Institute. And we're going to talk about the biggest issues in organic food and farming today. Welcome, Melody. Thanks, Lisa. It's great to be here. Great to have you. I, as a journalist, have been using Cornucopia's data and reports for many years. So it's, it's you know, been a really incredible tool for me. And so I'm excited to have this conversation with you. And I think a good place to start is, you know, the thing that I've used over the years that makes me think of what Cornucopia does are your scorecards that rate how meat and dairy brands are actually adhering to the organic standard. And I was just looking at um, your website before this, and it seems like you've expanded those into many new areas that I had no idea um, (laughs) existed. Is that a current focus or are you kind of looking to create scorecards across all different categories of organic food? 
Well, that's an interesting question. I think that you, um, I think that you found all of these new scorecards because we actually redid our website about ah. a year ago and it, it made it much more navigable. I'm, I'm really happy with it. It's easier to find things. Um, they're all in one place. Have, yes. Yes. <laughs> um, we do have a lot of scorecards right now, some of which are honestly a little bit outdated, but we're, um, we're updating all of them. And I don't think that we'll be adding any more after this. Our board is not very interested in that, but, but we are going to move forward into some new areas that we haven't looked at before. Um, mostly in the coming year, produce will be, um, will be a major area of study. And I, I don't think that we'll have a scorecard because produce as a, as an industry doesn't lend itself very well to a scorecard. Nobody really recognizes very many brands and produce. That's not how it's really done. Right. Um, but I, but I'm excited about the coming work there. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds interesting. And and you're right. It's not, you can't say like, oh, if you buy from this brand, you're lettuce. Like people, I don't think even know the brand. Right. So it's, it's kind of a, a totally different, it's going to have to be a different approach. Um, what is, so for someone who has never seen a cornucopia scorecard though, kind of the originals, like say, um, dairy, what, can you talk a little bit about what the process of putting that together looks like? Yes, I can. Um, so our staff is pretty knowledgeable, particularly our policy director, Marie Bertram. They're, um, they're a wonder. They actually call themselves a, us themselves a brain in a jar often. And they, um, they know quite a lot about livestock in particular. That's what a lot of their schoolwork was. And they have a great um, base of people, we all do, that we can go to and ask questions. So we might go to a very small farmer. We might go to a mid-scale farmer. And sometimes if they'll talk to us, we'll go to a large-scale farm to find out um, what are the practices, what are the challenges, uh, what direction is in this case, dairy going, um, how, because organic is about continuous improvement. It's, it's sort of a continuous process on our scorecard as well as new practices arise. Um, so we, so we, we understand the issues and then we send out surveys to all of the, all of the operations that we know. So we'll use the, the national organic programs, list of certified operations um, and then contact and do some homework because never do those addresses match up, honestly. <laughs> and, and so, so we'll go hunt these people down sort of and ask them to fill out our survey. And often it takes quite a lot of asking, um, quite a lot of phone calls, but eventually we end up with, with a good enough number to fill to start the scorecard. And then we go back to the, to the, operations that have not responded and we do our own homework. That's a, that's a new thing at Cornucopia. Previously, we would just give them like a zero or a one on the scorecard. If you don't answer, then you're not transparent, but it's mm -hmm. become incredibly clear to us that quite a lot of small farmers are just too busy to stop uh. and take a survey or they're not checking email or it's just all of the communications problems that we all have. And so, we go and do quite quite a good amount of homework uh, online and asking around to figure out what the practices are as near as we can tell. And then we assign scores. 
Got it. Yeah, I was going to ask you how difficult it is to get companies to respond because that it it does seem like you collect a lot of data and um it's interesting that that I hadn't thought of that challenge of like if it's a smaller brand and it's just coming from a farm, they're busy or they're not checking email. I was thinking more about the bigger companies um like so, some of them kind of make a choice not to respond as well, right? Right. Right. Yeah. Most often, that's what we see with the bigger companies. They're not. Uh, many of our questions center on um, how large is your largest farm herd. And again, we're talking about dairy, and mm-hmm. those are not popular things that companies like to like to tell you when they have these enormous herds in the in the desert southwest. So, right. Yeah. <laughs> so they just <laughs> make a strategic choice to to say we won't answer the questions instead of. Um, Right. Having that information out there, which, you know, speaks. It, and then, you know, they don't get rated properly, I guess. Right. But at the same time, like that speaks to their to that what they're doing in a, in a, just in a different way that, like you said, like if they're not being transparent, then consumers can see, OK, well, I know that company is not choosing to be transparent. And that's a kind of information they can use as well. It is. And we do also, um, we, ideally we would be going to all of these operations and visiting. That's not, um, that's not very reasonable given that there we're a staff of eight and also the, the pandemic has made travel just not, um, not a choice for most of us. And so we have flyover images from now it's been some years since we took them. But, but we also have Google Earth at our fingertips, and we're working on some other sort of artificial intelligence ways to get at what's happening on these operations. And, and I, um, I guess I, I would never feel like I'm misleading a, a consumer by, by giving those gigantic operations a, a one. A right. Of one. Yeah. Oh, and that's such a cool idea to use Google Earth. I, I use um, that all the time when I'm um, writing about industrial um, animal agriculture and like, you know, it, it, the first time someone showed me that you can see capos if they're big enough on um, Google earth, I was like, oh, this is amazing. Cause you can actually just look at where they are and, and, um, kind of get a sense of how big they are. Right. You can, it's, re- it's yeah. actually remarkable. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, um, in addition to the scorecards, this year you launched a program called the Living Soil Campaign. What is that about? So, the Living Soil Campaign uh, is sort of coming out of our of our concerns about climate change and biodiversity and um, the loss of topsoil. We're looking at we're looking at probably fewer than forty years, according to some reports, of topsoil left on Earth. We're just using it poorly. And um, so the Living Soil Campaign is all about drawing attention to the fact that soil that has not been abused terribly is, in fact, really alive. I just I just recently picked up this fact from NRCS that um, something like up to a ton of bacteria may exist in one acre. Um, And that's it's incredible. So there's this whole there's this whole other life happening under our feet that most of us are completely unaware of. And we think it's really important to draw attention to this because organic is all about living soil, ideally. Authentic organic, that's what we call it. 
um, not just not just organic to the standards, but authentic organic means that that farmers are taking care of the soil by growing crops that help each other in rotation, um, including cover crops and stacked practices. That's a um, that's kind of a jargony term, but it means that farmers will use more than one of these of these ideas. So they'll they'll cover crop, they'll do rotations, and they'll maybe include no-till or other practices that I'm that are not coming readily to mind. But there are many many of these right. these like small things that they can do, and and when you use stacked practices, you see the soil life really really grow. It it's it's like our um, our vice chair at Cornucopia has this really great metaphor about this. And she talks about how when you spray glyphosate on the Roundup, when you, when you spray Roundup on the, on the soil, on the land, it, um, it will kill not everything in the soil, but it will kill some number of things in the soil. So what you might end up with is still maybe a lot of life, but, but it's not as wide a variety of life. So she compares it to like in the ER, if you wipe out all of the doctors and you've only left, you know, nurses and orderlies, you, you have kind of a mess down there. And that's right. what we're seeing. Um, so living soil is crucial and you will see more about it. It's still an unfolding program. We're hoping to work with a few other organizations. And it's been an interesting year of, of really study for our policy team. I think it's really interesting because organic for a long time has, well, the organic industry in particular has leaned really heavily on um, health as a reason for buying organic food, right? And I think that's been strategic because there's, you know, statistics that say people buy organic food because they had a baby and they're concerned about residue, right? Um, not to like discount it. I'm like, because, <laughs> because they had a baby. And that's an important reason. And I, I shouldn't say it like that. But it's always been frustrating to me that that's kind of the only message that gets out about why you would choose organic when there are all these environmental um, arguments, not to mention like the poisoning of farm workers and <laughs> all of that. But but the idea of like the soil, which is, you know, has so many impacts on um, the environment, including um, climate, uh, that that is something that I think the industry hasn't done a great job at, at talking about. So um, I think it'll right. be interesting to, to see like what, what Cornucopia um, puts out there on that front. Yeah, thanks. I, I think it's interesting too. Um, what we're seeking to to make clear to people is is that I think that we all have a pretty reductive idea of how the world works. Like we we think of we think of our food like okay it's produced and then somehow I get it and I, I think most people don't give it a lot more thought than that. But really, organic agriculture is all about systems thinking. So everything is in a system, and soil health is impacted also by biodiversity and vice versa. So it's all it's all working together. We need to have lots of different things growing and we need to have lots of different things living on the land. And we need to have, um, you know, we need to have a breadth of things that we actually ultimately eat right now. We we eat so, so few crops. I can't 
I swear that I heard somewhere that is something like 30 foods that most of us eat like over and over and over. And when you, when you look at um, indigenous history, you can see people eating like 500 different crops throughout a year. And I, I think that, I think that that's a piece of it. So it's a, it's all a big learning for all of us, how to, how to think about food production. And I, I, I really, I really believe in organic. Amazing. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about organic policy. Good food is worth a thousand words. This is Arthi Menon, and I'm delighted to share a new podcast with you. My Family Recipe from Food 52 and Heritage Radio Network. Adapted from Food 52's much-loved column of the same name, the My Family Recipe podcast will bring its pages to life. Each episode of My Family Recipe brings you a cherished heirloom recipe and the story behind it from voices across the world of food. We'd open these tubs of dough and they would exhaust these incredible yeasty fumes and it just smelled like nothing else. It was so intoxicating. I'll interview writers and chefs, parents and children, about what's passed down along with the foods that we know and love. Chinese people aren't like born with a download on how to like velvet chicken. You know, like that's not something that just like comes to you. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we're back. This is Lisa Held. You're listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. I've been talking to Melody Morell. She's the executive director of the Cornucopia Institute. And we've been talking about kind of organic practice and some of the work that the Cornucopia Institute does on um, sort of helping people understand what organic means and and what producers are doing. Um, And I want to talk a little bit about policy. There's a lot going on right now um, when it comes to how USDA is handling organic and, and some rules that are coming out. Um, first of all, Melody, we've got a new Secretary of Agriculture, um, I guess, well, at this point, not super new, right? Almost a year, but <laughs> newish. Yeah. Um, new team at USDA that is still being fleshed out. Um, so far, what's your impression of um, Secretary Vilsack and the agency's handling of the National Organic Program? Mm-hmm. So I think, uh, although he's been there for a while, it's still too early to tell. Um, very little has really transpired so far. Um, <laughs> it's, it's really frustrating. There's quite a bit of lip service. There's um, promises that, that certain key rules, which I, I'm sure we'll talk about, are, are about to drop next spring. Um, but again, nothing. There's been $20 million uh, put toward what used to be organic cost share so that, so that uh, organic farmers can get help paying for their certification that's that's great, but but it's not it's also not attached to the organic cost share. It's some other pandemic program, uh, and twenty million dollars is really not going to go that far. Particularly when small farmers who most need it are the least poised to apply for and receive it. So mm-hmm. so there's that one thing one thing that I will say, or a few things that I will say that I think are going quite well. Um, with this current administration, however long we actually have it for, um, is Marnie Carlin is has now 
been named the senior advisor on organic and emerging markets at the USDA. And this is a new position there. I think there are a few of them up there. And and these are critical because USDA is not pro organic overall. Remember that organic is a marketing program to USDA. Mm -hmm. And so that's all it is. It has no um, no one is really allowed to say that it's superior in any way. No USDA person can say that. Um, to conventional or GMO production, which is ludicrous. But um, that's where we are in the program. And, and I'm seeing more high-level staff move in and begin to um, have things to say that, that I think will be useful overall once they kind of get their bearings. And I also see that the program itself has put in more enforcement uh, staff, which is crucial, um, absolutely crucial. It's, it's like... This thing that gets talked about a lot is that organic is probably about 6% of the market. I think that's the last number I heard. And and we're getting an, an incredibly tiny fraction of the of the USDA budget to enforce any of this. It's not 6% of the USDA budget. Mm. And so um so it's so so I will give them that that being understaffed is is a problem. Um and and we really need to see action quickly. This the how this was laid out, how off uh, the Organic Foods Production Act was laid out, um, that started uh, organic at USDA. It was a great dream. It was a great plan, and then and then all of the rulemaking sort of just stuttered, and and it ended up that big industry. Uh, got their foot in the door ahead of time. And before enforcement could even be considered, they started practices that are now like benchmark practices. Mm. So, so that's, I would say that's the rift. I know you didn't ask this, but that's the rift between what we call authentic organic and, and just certified organic production. Sure. Well, mm -hmm. and you, you mentioned enforcement. Um, let's, let's talk about that first. Um, so there's a rule called strengthening organic enforcement. And um, I believe that initially came out of the, the last farm bill. And um, it was one of the few rules that the USDA actually just kind of worked on and, and <laughs> put forward in a somewhat timely manner. Um, and yeah, and that came out of like really preventing fraud, right? Like the straight up, like the grains that are labeled organic that are not actually organic that are being imported. Um, that rule, I think at this point, right, is is they're saying it's going to be um, finalized in the spring. Is it strong enough? Do you feel good about the the um, components of that rule? Ah, uh, okay, so. So those are, I'm going to start with, do I feel good about the components? Yes. Um, yes, I, I feel good about the components as being a real baseline to begin to think about organic fraud. Okay. <laughs> there, we, we have, one of the problems that we have in organic agriculture is there are very few data points. Um, to get very, very wonky on you, there's something called harmonized tariff codes, which are um, codes for import and export uh, that, that can tell us how much of a given product are moving. Um, okay. In conventional, they have them everywhere. In organic, there's just very, very few products that are actually tracked that way. And I'm, and I'm telling you all of this 
<laughs> I'm telling you all this because we don't really know what's what's going on altogether. Like we have some guesses. We can guess from the market when prices fluctuate, sort of what's happening, and we can and we can get it. There are a shocking number of people on the ground who do um, file complaints with USDA about fraud. This isn't. It's not like completely unminded, but it's not. It's not working well enough yet. And and so what USDA has done in this rule is begin to collect data. And in fact, before this rule is even in place, there have been things moving on the ground. I've, I've been watching this really carefully because data is my sort of native area and, yeah. and I'm always looking for it. And USDA, uh, the, the National Organic Program, has begun to work with other agencies that it has weirdly never worked with before. So now they're working with um, Customs and Border Protection. And for the first time a few months ago, they actually were able to stop a shipment at the port. This has wow. never happened. So things are moving in that way. There's there's progress, but it's um, painful and slow. And um, and and this ultimately this rule is not going to be the be all end all for fraud. It won't be. Mm -hmm. It's just a foundational piece and it is needed. That's what okay. I'll say about that. Sure, sure. Um, so, so that one, I think, you know, like I said, kind of at least the process was kind of straightforward. Um, when we talk about another big rule that I know is is very that um, <laughs> very big in the organic world right now is um, origin of livestock. This one has been kind of like. Oh my gosh, I don't even know how many years this has been going on at this point. Do you? <laughs> since, since I mean pretty much since the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Since, um, yeah immediately. So so um well let me try to try to explain briefly what it is, just in case people are listening that don't know what it is, and, and you can correct me or add anything if, if I get it um wrong. So origin of livestock is is essentially this this rule that would correct a loophole in the organic standard that allows bigger dairy operations to swap in um, dairy cattle that have not been raised organically from birth. I know that's kind of an oversimplification, right? But um, is that, would you say, kind of sums it up? Yeah, that's right. And it's a, I'll add that it's a problem because, because some of the giant um, operations milk their cows three to four times a day. This is not good for cattle. Um, they burn out very quickly and they just don't live very long in that case. And so they're just they're just moving through cattle so rapidly that they need to transition new animals in. And instead of um, relying on on their own animals, which if you raise them from birth or, you know, from the last mm -hmm. of gestation, it's expensive to do that. Right. We're talking about organic feed and all the things. And if you can just go buy um just go buy a heifer who's who's ready to um, to milk produce milk that yeah. has been conventional. You save yourself a lot of money, and that's part of how the price of milk. I mean, that's one piece of how the price of milk has been forced down. I know consumers are excited about it, but really, what it means is not it is not great for organic integrity. Yeah, no, I'm I'm glad you you added that because that that kind of describes why it matters, right? And mm -hmm. and so this rule that is supposed to fix this loophole has been in the works for years and years. And the crazy thing about it is that it's it's got pretty much universal support among 
all all the organic advocacy groups, right? Even the organic groups that you, that Cornucopia Institute might not align itself with on other issues are pretty much all aligned on this rule. And yet it's still taken forever um, to actually get it finalized. Why do you think that is? Oh, I think there are a few, um, a few things here. Uh, The chief one, this is, this is just me uh, guessing based on some things that I've seen and heard. Uh, So, so to be clear, USDA has to actually look at when they when they make a rule, they have to look at an economic analysis, which is a really nebulous operation. We really have no idea how they do it, who they're talking to. Um, obviously, they're talking to the big players in the industry. That's you know, that's a big piece of the economic analysis. And they also want to make sure that there will be organic milk available on shelves across the country. These are real concerns. Um but so so what has happened is that 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 process of, of transitioning in conventional animals to these operations became so ubiquitous. Basically, basically a very tiny number of organic dairies in this country provide most of the organic milk. It's something like I think it's 25 dairies. I just did this data um, wow. analysis. It's like 25 dairies do do something like 75 percent of the milk in the country. So, uh, so the economic, right. Yeah. Yeah. Organic and um, sorry, organic milk. And so that obviously slants USDA's economic analysis toward those players Mm. and they are not, they're slow to move. And and so now what we've seen to, to get back to the rule is in the interim, at least Aurora dairy, down down in um well they have a few operations in Colorado and so forth but they have begun to factory farm heifers so it's they are actually organic from the third from the third period of gestation but they're not um it's it's like a, a factory situation is it is it better uh, <laughs> yes i Mm, right. Technically, but, but it's not it's not what we were looking for. And so and so in my opinion, origin of livestock may or may not really help. I'm not mm. sure how many of these operations are are doing something like this. There are now quite a lot of organic cattle around and and it feels huh. like they just kind of beat the system before the rule is going to land, honestly. That's that's crazy. I hadn't heard that. Well, then would so so that's an interesting point that relates to another ru- set of rules, which is the um, the oh my gosh, what does OLPP stand for? I just <laughs> like oh, lost the, the organic livestock and poultry yeah. practices rule. That yeah, one. it's a really There's big mouthful. <laughs> so many abbreviations in policy that I, I that one just kind of um, escaped. It, it just vanished from my mind. Um, so that that rule would. Um, you know, sort of correct some of the problems in organic related to um, animals uh, being treated properly and being outside, right, on pasture. So if if that rule does, if so that set of rules does actually move forward and get passed, would that then, in maybe in conjunction with the origin of livestock thing, it would, it, it could help be, with these mega dairies because they there would be more enforcement of, um, allowing cows out on pasture? 
it really has less to do with with cattle. That's uh, that's sort of a separate issue. There there are a few okay. bits of animal welfare in there for 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 cattle, but the but the headline there is more in poultry and in swine to a lesser degree. Uh, but but um, poultry have been really shortchanged. They there is no although they need access to the outdoors. That's the only part of the rule. That outdoor area does not need to be certified, interestingly. And um and it doesn't need to be any particular size. So the so the first iteration of OLPP that actually did pass um and then was rescinded by by mm-hmm. the Trump administration um would have helped uh, with with quite a few things. It would have it would have actually ensured that they were going outside. There could no longer be porches for poultry and um and it would have made sure that there was vegetation on the land as well so it's not just like this desertified if you've ever seen what chickens do to a yard it's remarkable and you and you need to have like they'll just destroy all of the vegetation so you need to actually care for it and this rule at that point would have done that so what i what i understand is that they have they did not for whatever reason um, they did not go forward with that version of the OLPP. It's in rewriting right now. And we're right. very curious what that will look like when it drops. How will it be different? I'm not, I, I really have no guess about that. I think, I think it probably will pass. And I think it, I think it will help some of these issues that we're seeing. Um, and there's a lot more to do for both dairy and poultry. Yeah. Okay. Um, I I can't believe we we're run, we ran out of time already. There, there's so so much that we could continue to talk about. But um, the thing I want to ask you about before we wrap up is, you know, we for the past few minutes we've been talking about these very wonky rules. Um, you know, kind of the inner workings of USDA policy and how it affects. Um, organic operations. It's it's kind of the nitty gritty, and it's it's not like. Um, super glamorous, right, to talk about. <laughs> right. But, um, you know, just thinking about the future, um, why does all this and, it's, you know, in, in, in the context of maintaining the integrity of the organic standard, which cornucopia is all about, why does it matter? Oh, it matters because what we saw in the pandemic um, and as we're watching in the climate crisis, uh, there's a lack of resilience in the, in, in the, in the soil in the in the biodiversity, all of it. We're we're in trouble, honestly. And the standards hang on to all of those foundational precepts of health. So if we allow the standards to to slide off, I just I feel like uh, I feel like kind of all is lost. Organic is the gold star. Organic, not all production is organic right now, but it but it is like the thing to shoot for in terms of climate health and in terms of, in terms of like antibiotic resistance, that's another problem that we have. It's like potentially another pandemic could unfold due to the way that we do conventional uh, livestock care. And, and so that's basically, that's why I think the organic standards are crucial. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks. It was great to be here. 
And thank you all so much for listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to the podcast, rate it, and share it. Until next time, this is Lisa Held. The Farm Report is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Just enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.